0: Good day, and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Today, we have a very special guest here on Energy Policy Now, one of the top national journalists covering energy and the environment. David Roberts is an energy and environmental writer with Vox, the online news site, and as of this fall, also a senior fellow with the Climate Center for Energy Policy. Today we're going to talk about media's coverage of the politicized issues of energy and climate change and the challenge of being heard in a noisy and splintered media environment. David, it's great to have you here. Great to be here. So you've traveled all the way from your home in Seattle to spend a week here at the Climate Center in Philadelphia. You've had a packed schedule. What have you been up to so far this week?
1: Oh, goodness. I uh, talked to a variety of interesting people. (laughs) It's a bit of a blur now, but a whole bunch of interesting people. Uh, I talked to some students about about how I do my work. I gave a lecture on electrification. I just talked to the city manager of Philadelphia. Uh, What else? And had some
0: really good food. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's my impression thus far. Great. So, so a lot of research goes into your stories that you write for Vox. Is there anything in particular you're researching here at the center, and any heads up on future topics that you might be writing about?
1: Uh, I'm not specifically researching anything this week. Uh, the the center is very generously um, helping me go on a reporting trip that starts on Sunday. I will be going to Barcelona to report on uh, what they call superblocks, which is a sort of grand plan to create walkable urban areas throughout throughout the city in, in every sort of – so that everyone has access to them and not just wealthy people. And it's a very politically contested thing over there right now and – Anyway, it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to it. So that's,
0: Even in a place like Barcelona, which I've never been to, but it's a, it's a very urban, walkable city to start yes, out with, I would imagine.
1: Yes. Well, still, still somewhat controversial and more controversial now because they have a new mayor who has completely scrambled the politics over there. And I think it's come from outside the, sort of the traditional party system. So, I, I mean, I still need to do a lot of research before I head over there, but that's, that's sort of what's been on my what's been on my
0: mind. Got it. So, so before we go into a discussion specifically on the issues of energy and environmental issues, there's a question I'd like to ask you. Okay. Your writing often seems to be an exploration of ideas and events as much as an explanation of them. Okay. You recently wrote an article about the role that luck plays in overall life success. It had nothing to do with energy and the environment. What is it that motivates you as a writer?
1: Well, that, that's a good question. I sort of have come to view it, and this is, you know, and, and Vox has been, um, you know, great in allowing me this freedom. Mm-hmm. So I sort of think of energy as my home base, my, my island. It's got solid ground. It's got uh, facts, <laughs> statistics. It's got, I, I have some, some expertise and some history in it, so I've, I feel comfortable there. So I spend most of my time there and then sort of sally forth this way and that <laughs> into other topics, uh, y- you know, sort of as they as they strike me and I and I try to sort of, insofar as I go outside of energy, I try to do things that are at least somewhat tapping into the zeitgeist or the current conversation, but maybe in because I don't have to cover politics on the kind of day to day what happened, you know, who's squabbling with who, who's up, who's down. I don't have to do any of that stuff, so I'm free to just sort of come in and take a kind of a 30,000-foot view and and talk about ideas and 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 larger sort of intellectual dynamics. And uh, you know, it's always I'm always a little bit nervous doing that out, out from my home base, but the but the feedback has always been so so great that it sort of has encouraged me to take more of those little little trips. <laughs>
0: Do you have a, a specific mandate with Fox? Uh,
1: no, I mean I'm I'm I was hired to cover climate and energy, but but it, it, I think within that, as long as you know, as long as they they think I'm have got a handle on that, I don't think I think they're let me do what I want what I want more or less. As long as you know, as long as I'm not as long as I'm
0: producing and people are reading it, they're they're happy. So one reality of climate change is that it's a, a far-ranging and, and very complex topic. You just rolled your eyes on that one, right? <laughs> Tell it, me about it. And what you see isn't necessarily what you get. And that makes it easy to put forth some simplistic, distorted views on the issue. I want to ask you, what are the misconceptions on climate that you feel are common among people who don't live and breathe these issues on a daily basis? Right.
1: That's – well – I have some answers to that, but honestly, I would like for someone to tell me, because <laughs> <laughs> okay. in a sense, you know, I, I think any sort of writer or journalist will be familiar with this. In a sense, once you get very deep into something, it's very easy to lose touch with what ordinary people know about it or how they think about it. To and, take a
0: step back. Yeah. And that. Yep.
1: Yeah. And it, it's hard to unknow things or unsee things in certain ways. So like, so like, for instance, uh, a, a story. I was, who, who was I talking to? I was, it was like a cab driver or something like that. I don't want to tell a Tom Friedman story, but I was talking to, I was talking to some, some more or less stranger and about what I do and just rattling on about natural gas and, 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 and they stopped me and they're like, is natural gas carbon free or is that a car, is that a fossil fuel? And you know, like, you know, no, no, Well, People no. talk
0: about being clean. The
1: yeah. Right. Exactly. There, like right? no, no criticism of this person. It mm-hmm. just is sort of like illustrative to me. Like, right. I got to back up a few steps. I can't, I can't assume too much, but I mean, this is the obvious answer, but nonetheless, the true answer, the main misconception people have is they don't get how extreme, they don't get how bad it is. Mm -hmm, (laughs) They don't mm -hmm. get, they don't get how bad it is and how present it is, right? They think it's future. They think it's far away. They think it's slow. They think, um, you know, all the, all, all these things, despite, Dozens of people pounding the drums <laughs> otherwise it 's uh I think the sense of urgency has not caught on and spread, and that's has less to do i think with people explaining intellectually the urgency and more to do with sort of um, how to put it almost like the aesthetics of urgency like it doesn 't feel if you 're just if you're just come down from Mars and look at American politics, you would not sense any urgency about climate politics right and so I think average people don't sense it and so on some level they don't really feel it in their gut that that it's urgent like you can you can say it over and over again but they're not going to feel it until the leaders that they look to for cues really start behaving as though it's urgent and that's not a explanation thing that's a political I don't know (laughs) I don't know what that is, but or how to make it happen. But uh, that's, I mean, that's the biggest gap I think in public understanding.
0: You use the word urgency a number of times there, and, and you know, uh, if we might boil down energy and climate change to a couple of issues, okay, issues that you would recommend that somebody follows closely to really know what's going on and what's most important. What would those issues be? Right. That's.
1: That's a, a good question. I mean, I think the one, the one thing I want to communicate to people and I, and I say in all my talks and I say and uh, you know, in my writing over and over again is we – there's lots of complications in the science and there's lots of complications in the modeling and the projections and everything else. But, but no matter – like if you look at the full range of them, they all more or less convey the same message, which is the U.S. has got to decarbonize entirely – by mid-century. So that's clarifying, right? That's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not fiddling around at the margins. It's not reducing emissions. It's, if you see something in the U.S. emitting carbon, you know it has to go eventually, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's, so in a sense, that frame lets you understand everything else that's going on, right? So you're like, well, where's the carbon coming from? And we gotta, and we have to plan, we have to make a plan not just to cut back on it, not just to trim it back, but we've got to make a plan to eliminate it. So that means, you know, uh, uh, alternatives or, or behavior changes. So in a sense, that's the kind of issue that precedes all other issues, right? The zero, the zero target is the big deal. And as for something more specific, I think the most interesting stuff going on right now and and the place where there's most activity and ferment and thinking and new models and ideas is around electricity and around the grid it, mm-hmm. itself so clean electricity and not just renewables but you know as i as i said in my in my talk yesterday the more renewables you put on the grid wind and solar the more you get these sort of fluctuations they vary with the weather and so you get this dilemma which you need to balance the grid you need you need flexibility on the grid and you need and right now, natural gas is providing that flexibility. But again, if you're going to get to zero, you got to eliminate the fossil fuels. So how to provide that balance and stability on the grid, even in the presence of rising levels of renewables, is, is a fascinating issue that pulls in a million other issues, right? Like there's a million different ways of going about that, but it's sort of like, it, that's kind of the, the center of a bunch of, uh, a bunch of things that are happening right now. And, and it's my favorite stuff to follow too because I think it's not only – unlike federal politics or federal policy, it's happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something's happening. <laughs> so it's not just fruitless shouting. Like there's actual developments. There's political movement. There's technological movement. There's, and um, there's – it's uh, intellectually – very interesting like I, I i studied philosophy in grad school for 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 many years and and i'm a big fan of systems thinking sort of thinking of things in systemic terms and and the grid is you know it's the
0: ultimate system
1: it's the ultimate system and it's furthermore it's a place where unlike in say philosophy class. <laughs> it's a place where systems thinking can actually do some good and clarify things and, and inform policy. So it's like a place where systems thinkers can be, you know, the heroes <laughs> today, which doesn't come up a lot. So to me, that's fascinating. A, the sort of taking the broad systemic view of the grid. And then, and then you can hone in down to any level, fine grain level you want. You know, the closer you look, you find more and more complications and issues and interesting things. But that's kind of the if there's one thing I return to more often than anything else and that m- more of my pieces than anything else sort of revolve around or touch on in some way or another, it's that, it's, gr- it's the grid.
0: Well, this is actually more concrete, right? I mean, politics are flippy floppy all over the place, but <laughs> the grid, you know, you've got a problem, you've got to kind of resolve It's a it. physical machine. Right, right. So so getting away from that comforting <laughs> issue of the grid and its real problems, let's talk about um, kind of perception of things for just a moment. Yeah, You know, you've been a journalist for years, right? You were a grist covering environment before you came to Vox. How has the national dialogue around environment changed, if at all, during the time that you've covered it? Wow. That's, (laughs) I mean, a lot, (laughs) a lot
1: of ways. I started at Grist in late 2004, I think, just after the reelection of George W. Bush. And, And back then, you know well well we can get into this later a, a little bit but the the environment frame and the climate frame are not exactly the same and part of what's happened over those years that I've been a journalist is that they have somewhat separated or they've become distinct things they used to be muddled into one like Back in 2004, nobody was paying attention to hardly any of this stuff except for, you know, capital E environmentalists. So it was all sort of the muddle of environment stuff, pollution stuff. But now um, one of the things that's happened over time is that it's become clear that climate overlaps with traditional environmental concerns, but not entirely. There's a Venn diagram. There's a lot of overlap, but there's also issues where sometimes climate pulls against environment and vice versa. So so that's one of the things that's happened. Um obviously the, one of the other things that's happened is people have started caring. Like it's people talk about it now, it's an mm-hmm. actual live political issue. Um, not as much on the federal level as you'd like, but certainly among states and cities like people are genuinely taking this up. And and I think if I had to if I had to pinpoint sort of one pivot point where that 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 both illustrated and caused a lot of the changes in this, it would be it would be Obama and the Stimulus Act, which sort of single-handedly spurred this incredible explosion of hmm. growth in renewables and and an incredible decline in their price and an incredible spread, which then started forcing issues one after the other. Started, stimulus
0: was really that important. Yeah. You know.
1: Yes. I think it's Poorly understood and poorly appreciated to this day, particularly by climate people. Like uh, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, Mike Grunwald makes the point; wrote a whole book about it. As a matter of fact, uh, that that among other things, the stimulus was the biggest energy bill in American history. Like mm. in terms of the the amount of money deployed and the comprehensiveness of it, it was it was an incredible energy bill. It was just also a bunch of other bills. So that never really got pulled out and and isolated. So my point being, like, once renewables started getting cheap, then they started forcing coal plants off the grid. You know, they start spreading into red states and messing with the politics there. They start, and also, like, this is less tangible and and less hard to pin down, but um, renewables becoming cheap and popular and spreading, I think, gave people a kind of permission to take climate more seriously. Hmm. in in, in a sense like it's hard to take climate seriously if the conclusion is we're screwed and there's no you know like and nothing's happening and if it's all just grim but if but if once you see a path out it almost is like psychologically easier to take in does it become an opportunity in a sense well well it, it can become an opportunity but also just like people don't want to acknowledge problems that are insoluble. <laughs> so mm-hmm. once the problem is soluble, suddenly like people come around to like, you know, people do not come by their beliefs in entirely rational ways. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything by that. And and, and so a lot of it is just, they they pick up, they pick up on it. And and, and I think renewables have given people, um, had, they've made the climate issue less of a sort of doom and gloom thing and more of a uh, given it more aspects of sort of excitement and future facing and economic development, you know, there's technology, there's like exciting aspects of it now. And those are all I write about now. I hardly, I mean, I still get called a climate writer, but I haven't written a post actually about climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, I write like maybe one or two a year. I hardly write about the science or the actual phenomenon itself. I write about what the heck we're doing about it. (laughs) Right. And that's where things are happening. and, And there's tons of exciting developments, tons of stuff to write about.
0: You did mention the word belief, though. Sorry to keep bringing up your words here. Um, but I, I just want to ask you this. Do you believe that your writing or any writing can can cross the partisan divide? How do you get people on the other side, in quotes, to pay attention? Um,
1: we don't have time for me to do my full rant on this, on this <laughs> subject, so I'll give you the abbreviated form. I think people in the climate world are wildly over-concerned with and over obsessed with the remaining deniers on the right. Hmm. They they don't matter and haven't mattered for a while. And certainly insofar as they matter, they matter like like a like a, a mountain you have to climb over, not as an intellectual engagement, right? There's no point. There has not been a point in engaging
0: them intellectually in a long time. But they, but the part of that that group elected the president that we have now. I mean, there's there, there's a significant number of those people who who well, are get ing- invested in that.
1: I don't think that denialism. I think it's an inch deep on the right. I think we I think we overestimate how I, I think most people on the right don't care particularly, and if their leaders shifted the other way for some reason saw acknowledging climate change as being in their interests. I think that the the the, the right wing sort of bubble, you know, they're all in this bubble together. I think it would swing around behind them like a school of fish. I don't think there's any particular independent commitment on the part of most conservatives to denialism. I think it's just sort of uh, liberals believe X. So we believe not X like that's. I don't think there's a lot more to it than that. But I just don't think there's any like I don't. The answer to how I reach across the divide is I don't, and I don't try anymore. And I don't think it's worth trying. I think it's futile and a waste of time and a waste of energy. And most of the people on the left and the center left who are doing it are mainly doing it to impress other people on the center left with how open-minded and broad-minded they are. I don't think they're reaching anyone on that side anymore. Like that side has become boiled down and concentrated to a hard nut core of immovable <laughs> people and 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 the job now is political it's to overcome them right there's no point in persuading them so i you know like people refer to it sort of derisively as preaching to the choir but but our choir is 70% of the country <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a pretty damn big choir and and furthermore just because they are you know, sort of quote on my side in a broad sense doesn't mean they already know everything they need to know or know what they're like. They still want to know how to think about things and what the priorities are. And they still want explanations like just because they're on your side doesn't mean you have nothing to say to one another, right? Mm-hmm. Like they they, 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 particularly on energy and climate change, people want, it's very big and complicated and it's very new and novel to most people. Most people have not spent a lot of time thinking about it. So there's a lot of work for for people who can sort of conceptually clarify and politically clarify things for people. So that's, I think that's important work and that's what I see myself doing. And like if, if someone wants to knock themselves out trying to reach Fox News viewers with scientific arguments about climate change, like it has not worked for twenty to thirty years, but maybe you know, mm-hmm. maybe you'll find just the magic message to you know, like, but but I doubt it. Like that, they'll they will change politically. They'll come around behind climate change when they are forced politically, and not before. It will not be arguments and persuasion
0: that does that work. You write about so many different topics. I mean, they're all within the realm of this energy and environment as well, right, climate change. Um, And it's a broad world, right? I mean, there's a lot to deal with. And then you go outside of it, as I said earlier, the one about luck, and then you also did something recently related to Me Too. What does your day as David Roberts look like, and where do you come up with all these ideas?
1: (laughs) Well, I have lots of opinions.
0: (laughs) It's essential in your business,
1: (laughs) That That predates my journalism career. And, and you know, I'm, and I still like philosophy and I still like thinking about big things, abstract things. And I still, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, like I said, every time I've attempted to sort of articulate something that like, well, for instance, this Me Too article I wrote, like, in one sense, you can view everything I said as like, duh, it's obvious, right? The whole, the whole point is just like, guys, here's Here's why women are so upset, you know, <laughs> like, d- d- der, open your eyes and you'll see it. And furthermore, several billion women have already told you this and you would already know it if you had listened to them. But here, let me as a guy say it. Maybe you'll hear me. But so in a sense, I'm saying things that seem obvious. But but as I said, like every time I've tried to do that, it's it's such positive feedback. Like I get people saying I like I you expressed what I was thinking in a way that I was not able to like you hmm. gave me words, you gave me words in a conceptual structure to express what I already sort of was thinking, and that's like the nicest feedback <laughs> any writer can get uh, about anything, so it sort of encouraged me to to attempt more of those things um as to what my day looks like, <laughs> this is not this should not be in any way construed as advice or counsel to anyone but but basically, like I spend my morning. In early afternoon, dealing with email, calling people that I have to call, you know. uh, Sources or. Yeah, yeah. Just doing all the non-writing stuff, basically, except for insofar as Twitter is, is writing. I do a lot of tweeting and, you know, basically like during the day, I've completely lost my ability to to lock in and do any sort of concentrated long-term work. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm not mm-hmm. alone in this. Like I, my colleagues at Vox baffle and amaze me because they're cranking out these articles in the middle of the day, which to me now <laughs> just seems like wildly impossible. So, so I do all that during the day. And then late afternoon, I, I walk my dog or, or do some yoga or some exercise and eat dinner, you know. And then my sort of second shift <laughs> starts mm-hmm. at about 10 p.m. Hmm. And from 10 to 2, about that's when i do probably 95 plus wow, percent, real night owl percent of a total night owl that's almost all of my writing has been done late at night as for years and years now just because the sort of torrent of incoming incoming slows a little bit and gives you
0: room to think so let me ask you about that so so where do you get your news and do you have any advice for listeners who try to manage their way through all the massive information that's coming i found that i'm overwhelmed
1: yeah i mean i don't have any great elegant solution i still spend 2 hours a day waiting through email just like just like i did in 1998 you know like it still feels inefficient do you get your do you get your, your labor news intensive. from
0: twitter and the the big some national twitter. publications or... yeah
1: some twitter i rely on twitter for the sort of like national political zeitgeist, like what's on people's mind, which is rarely my issues, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, but the, for for my issues for the news, I there, it's mostly email and it's mostly um, these sort of digests, news roundups mm-hmm. that various and sundry publications put out. So I get like four of those. So if you read four news roundups on your issue a day, you're gonna one way or another see everything that is of significance. So it's just, there's nothing, there's no solution that I've found, but just time waiting through email, which is miserable, but yet apparently unavoidable.
0: What are the conversations like when you're talking with someone opposed to your opinions on whatever? How do those conversations go? And and I know you say you're not trying to convince anybody anymore, but you you must run into this, right? Well, I don't have the
1: climate fight anymore i mean i just don't encounter those people (laughs) Or, or insofar as i encounter them i just roll my eyes and move on um so so and this is another thing that's nice about energy relative to politics like in energy there are disagreements but but like there's a disagreement about about how what percentage of our electricity we can ultimately get from renewables versus having to supplement that with hydro and nuclear and other stuff. Like, is it 70 percent? Is it 80 percent? Like, that's a pretty civilized and technical disagreement. And, and, and people in the energy world, in my experience, uh, are able to discuss these things in mature ways and disagree in, in substantive ways and have arguments about these issues that are substantive and interesting, possibly just because I think they're somewhat distanced from politics, because they're sort of technical and systemic. They, 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 it's an area where there's lots of disagreements in the energy world, but, but, I, but, but I don't – it's not one of those things where I feel like I'm on a different team than other people. You know, it's not, they're not teams. There's people who are – a lot of people who are genuinely curious and genuinely want to know what's true and right and and are helping one another find it. So it's very refreshing <laughs> in that way. It's why I like coming back to it after I foray out into politics, you know, where it's all teams, mm-hmm. no facts. No one really knows what's going on. Everybody's BSing. It's just like marshmallow. You're
0: waiting around in marshmallow. It's nice to come back to
1: energy where there's like people of goodwill and actual facts to
0: cover. Recently, the BBC came out and said that it hasn't been reporting properly on climate, okay? Uh, What it said essentially was that its reporters have given deniers of climate science, and I hate to come back to this, I just want to get your opinion on it, have given deniers of climate science too much rope, and they haven't challenged them or provide sufficient balance at times. Uh, The BBC is further uh, training its reporters to challenge and, you know, not just take things at face value. Do we have this issue generally in the press here in the U.S.?
1: Uh, I think much like I think people exaggerate the the significance and effect of deniers I think I think that media critique the both sides you know balance the scientist with random denier guy that was a problem in US media when I started mm-hmm. especially but I don't think it really is anymore like I don't really don't think and I think BBC and everybody else, like the Guardian, you know, made some big, grand gesture recently too. They're committed to climate change. I forget exactly what they did, but you know, you see sort of these media outlets being like, "We're throwing this sort of old fashioned objectivity of the wind, and we're going to like, you know, we believe that climate matters, and we're going to write from that perspective." I think they're all going to find that just because you include a sentence in every story saying, oh, "This hurricane is connected to climate change," which is actually happening and not controversial, it's not going to change anything, really. I don't think that's a problem that is like sub- substantially impeding things I- anymore. I think media in the U.S. has actually gotten quite a lot better on it and probably doesn't get enough credit.
0: Well, I want to take this a step further, if I may, okay? So there's a lot of talk generally about the two-degree target on global warming, which is a target that's looking harder and harder for us earthlings to actually meet, okay? There's also a lot of talk about technologies, carbon capture and storage being the one that most clearly comes to mind, that are, in fact, expensive and logistically very challenging to implement if we ever really do at scale. Yet both of these issues, it seems to me, are often kind of glossed over as if they are reality and that both are promises that are going to be fulfilled. Is there a disservice in these assumptions? Mm -hmm. And am I just imagining that I'm seeing (laughs) this and reading this?
1: Yeah, I think that is a species of a mistake that a lot of people make when they are too close to an area. And of course, I include myself in this because I'm as close as it gets to this area. But I think there's a tendency to exaggerate the sophistication (laughs) of the public's opinions on this. Like, I suspect if you really dug down and and, and dug down a few levels, you would find that most people in the public – don't really clearly distinguish between climate pollution and air pollution. Don't really know which are the fossil fuels. Don't really know what the relationship is between solar and oil. You know, like that gets mixed up all the time what the relationship is between electricity and energy more broadly. Like all these things that are of great interest to those of us who follow this stuff and care about it. I just don't think those fine distinctions matter much or like sink into the public. Like, Generally, I think the public needs, you know, like obviously anyone in the public who wants to know more should be able to find more, and I and that's you know that's what I spend my life doing. But like generally, politically, I think the public just generally needs to be oriented in basically the right direction, mm-hmm. and, and I think it should be to experts to figure out the details. And and I think, um, you know, that's inevitably if you say that in the U.S. context, there's this sort of like knee jerk. Populism in the U.S. uh, on all sides, which is going to sort of accuse you of elitism, like, oh, you're. But I think if you look at the success story in the U.S., the biggest success story is California. Look at the California model. The California public is generally on board and supportive, but the details are almost entirely worked out by the California Mm -hmm. Air Resources Board, which is this sort of council of experts mm-hmm. <laughs> that's distanced a little bit from public opinion and public feedback and so as far as i'm concerned like let carb or or its equivalent work that out and just like get the public pointed in the right direction and don't worry about like if they're grasping the finer distinctions like should it ever come up and be a politically salient issue that is like matters in some significant way obviously you know i'd be the first in line to explain why carbon direct air capture is not yet something we can bet on, you know, or something like that. But, but, it, but, am I worried about like the public getting too excited or too optimistic? No. <laughs> like, am I worried that the public is passionately in favor of 100% renewables, even though lots of experts think that that's technologically impossible? No, I'm not particularly worried because the experts will work it out when we get there. So, like, we just need the will. We need positive sentiment.
0: So you have faith that it'll be worked out if we can just sit down and focus on it and get it sorted out. Yes. Okay, got it. When tech, you're kind of giving me a <laughs> hey, look on your face, half there, half I, there. I mean, I, I, I yeah, I think we can work that out.
1: And I think like a lot of these, I think a lot of, These issues are going to resolve themselves in ways that nobody, including the experts, Mm -hmm. has any freaking clue about right now. (laughs) And everybody, like, you know, everybody's more or less guessing. So, like, how much will we need carbon capture? How much will we need nuclear? No one really knows. So, like it's i think it's it's silly to pretend that the, like we should be conveying the expert knowledge to the all the public when the experts don't even really know what's going to happen like the market and and events will sort those things out over time and then everybody all the experts will look back and revise their stories retrospectively to make sense of it all but like no one knows what's going to
0: happen couple couple more questions for you here so this stuff is a lot to think about right when you are just escaping and you pick up a book, if you have time to read it, I guess from 2 in the morning to 2.45, you yeah, know, when, when would I do that? <laughs> uh, what, do you, what do you read when you're just having fun? Uh, this is
1: uh, um, a sad, maybe a sad admission, but... I I don't have time to read books anymore for Mm -hmm. pleasure like I used to, you know, because the time I have for recreational reading is so fragmented and such tiny chunks and I'm always, you know, like work's always on the back of my mind. So generally when I read recreationally, it's graphic novels, it's comic books. I've gone back to comic books. I've regressed to comic books. So talk about escapism, like I read good graphic novels.
0: Got it. Uh, Final question for you here. Let's say in a couple of years we get a new administration and a Congress that is uh, not going to obstruct attempts to address a lot of energy issues, funding of technologies, up and down the road. Okay, Do you think the country now is at a place, both as its citizenry and and its politics, to take that switch in Washington – and run with it in the most positive way possible or are there other roadblocks that might come up
1: Mm, well i would uh, just dispute the premise a a little bit i guess i mean i think no one wants to say this because of various conventions in journalism and conventions in politics but if you look around empirically where does progress happen In the U.S. on these issues, it happens in places that elect overwhelming Democratic majorities. That's what that's what California. That's the lesson of California. The reason they're doing all this stuff is because the Republican Party can't stop them. So the chances of Democrats getting a similarly unstoppable majority at the federal level are extremely slim uh, uh, even in the best case scenarios, so the Republican Party will be able to stop them and will do so. So, so I, I, I just don't think, I don't think there's going to be a dramatic switch at the federal level. I think what's eventually going to happen is that action is going to build and rise from the bottom, from cities and states, to the point. That it forces the issue federally i don't think federal i don't think the federal government is going to lead on this ever really in the u s that's that's my that's my grim prognosis, but states are doing you know like amazing things are happening in cities and states, and if you look at sort of you know the example I always use is fuel economy standards, you have these sort of moribund federal standards. But then California has this waiver is allowed to set its own standards and other states are allowed to join California. So California just vaulted ahead, kept raising its standards and eventually had something like 15 or 16 or 17 other states attached to it. And so finally, the car companies went to the feds and said, we can't do this. We can't make two sets of cars. So we have to raise federal standards. So it Mm -hmm. was entirely a bottom up forcing process. If there's ever federal movement on climate and energy,
0: it will be through something like that route, I think. Dave, thanks for talking. Thanks for having me. Today's guest has been David Roberts, energy and environmental writer with Vox and a senior fellow at the climate Center for Energy Policy. Interested in more expert insights into today's energy and environmental policy issues? If so, visit the climate Center website where our energy policy blogs and digests are all available. Or subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast outlet. And of course, we'd love your feedback. Our email is Energy at upenn.edu thanks for listening and have a great day